there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I am not much of a gardener. I'm sure this was a source of disappointment for my parents who loved gardening. I did okay if the place we were living in already had a garden and all I had to do was maintain it. You know, weed, add a few plants, move stuff around. Our current house, we live in a little townhouse, doesn't have a very large yard at all. The previous owners were an elderly couple and hadn't done any work in the garden for ages, clearly. Uh, this is a problem for me because I look out there and I don't even know where to start. You know, if a garden already existed, I could maintain it, but to create one? <laughs> Not a strength I possess. Turns out a friend of my son's does landscaping, so he has started coming over once a week or so and working in the yard. We're paying him, of course. I don't expect him to do it for free. We have discussed the things we envision and plants we like, and he's got started tidying up the flower beds and cleaning up the goo and getting them ready for new plants. We also want to get rid of the grass, most of which is moss and buttercup anyway. The idea is to have lots of flowers for bees. I want to see lots of color out the window, and, and, and the more help we give to the bees, the better. I will do my best best to keep it nice once it's finished. I keep hearing the characters from Charlie Brown saying, you're hopeless, Charlie Brown, completely hopeless. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace. Chapter 28. Here in the Middle. Fennel resented the meager pre-dawn light. It played tricks on the eyes, letting him think the night sky was growing paler, but doing so at such a gradual rate he couldn't rely on it. And what was the point of light that didn't adequately illuminate their journey down the switchback on the west side of the mountain? All night Fennel had led his companions along the dim wooded trail. The wider path to which the trees had guided them was easier, though the pain in his leg nagged him to rest. They could still hear the stream rushing down the steep hillside at each southern elbow of the trail. Fennel's little party stumbled with exhaustion, coupled with a growing sense of unease. Karras and his men ought to have caught up by now. Had he simply gone back for more men? Or did he know something Fennel did not about these blasted hills? Or maybe the trees were slowing them down? There was naught to do but press on. A stone kicked off the edge of the path by a horse's foot tumbled and rolled down the precipitous slope. When some squirrels encouraged them into an opening at the north end of the switchback, Fennel heeded Nelferch's advice. No, thanks very much all the same. He looked about hopefully for a chipmunk. Seeing none, he accepted the directions given by a nuthatch. Can you trust them? Janet growled with impatience bred of too much walking, not enough sleep, and no food. I don't know. Fennel snapped, his own patience at a low ebb. Do you have any better ideas? A stubborn tree with the appearance of a small sycamore refused to shift aside in spite of Fennel's polite request. Its mottled trunk looked puffed out as it stood in the center of the path, and its branches extended the full breadth of the narrow way. Please, we need your help, Fennel repeated. He peered uncomfortably over the brink. The sycamore did not so much as quiver. Frederick reached for his sword. We'll just cut the damn thing down, then. Fennel stayed his hand, an unpleasant thought having occurred to him. No, don't, he ordered. 
Slowly, slowly, Fennel backed away amid protestations from Laot. Almost imperceptibly, the tree had grown taller, as if drawing itself to full height, stiffening. And without further warning, the branches lashed out. Fennel, at the front of the party, was hit square in the stomach and tossed backwards into Frederick. The wood elf hit his head on Frederick's chin, and both yelped. The backwards motion set all four friends off balance, and they tumbled over the edge into the ferns and brush. Fennel slid ungracefully down the steep hillside, bruising his limbs against deadfalls and rocks that were hidden beneath the greenery. Laot, too, was sliding and frantically struggled to regain his footing. He screamed the way only a horse can scream. "'Don't fight it, boy!' Fennel cried. Fennel heard the muffled yells of his companions as they tumbled along with him, and he was reminded perversely of a childhood nursery rhyme. Over and over and over they tumbled and bumbled and stumbled. Of course, this little slide had not been caused by the ground rumbling and crumbling. Suddenly he stopped rolling and sliding. Something slammed into him, knocking his breath out with a hoof. "'What in seven hells was that?' Frederick asked from where he had halted, back to back with Fennel. Fennel's breath came in short gasps. That, my friend, and he used the term loosely, was a mall tree. Frederick leapt up and helped Fennel to his feet. A frantic scramble succeeded in righting Janik and Harley. The horses stood at the bottom of the slide, staring at their two-legged companions as if wondering what the big deal was, all except Harley's animal. A quick arrow to the beast's head abruptly ended his suffering from a broken leg. "'Damn nuthatches!' Fennel muttered, and looked about for his bearings as Harley transferred his few belongings onto Layout. To his wonder and delight, the stream flowed close to horizontally just off to the left, and the trees were much thinner. If they just plowed on westward, they should emerge. "'Shit!' Harley said, looking up the way they'd come. "'Elves!' Wood elves had appeared far above them on the highest layer of the switchback. The time for mucking about had passed. Fennel leapt up onto Layout, dragging Harley behind him. Dwarf and man followed suit, and they urged their horses to follow the stream. Please block them, Fennel implored. The question was, in a race between Wood Elf and Wood Elf, whose side were the trees on? Arrows rained down on them from the top of the switchback trail. Fennel clung to Layout's mane, pain both in his wounded leg and in his heart. They're firing at us, he repeated over and over in utter disbelief and bewilderment. Elves firing at elf, dwarf, and human. They did not hit anyone. On purpose? Fennel looked back and up the steep hillside. Through the trees he could not count their foes. Some ran down the back-and-forth trail, and a few trotted straight down the side. They were gaining, and Fennel urged Layout forward. An arrow whizzed past his head, thudding into an aspen as Fennel circled round it. Enough! He reined in and came to a halt, dismounting in a sea of ferns. Bow at the ready, he took aim. "'Fennel, what are you doing?' screamed Janik. Another arrow darted toward the elf, and he ducked. He hesitated. "'I can't do it!' Sweat beaded on his forehead. "'I can't shoot an elf!' "'Hold!' Karis called to his troop. The elven captain's arrow was knocked and ready. He stepped cautiously forward. Continuing in Elvish, he called to Fennel from sixty paces away. "'I don't want to shoot you.' "'Then lower your bow,' Fennel replied, his aim steady. "'Come, you know you won't shoot. Just drop what you stole from the Tree of Life, and no harm will come to you, or to your friends.' "'Back off, Karis!' Fennel yelled. Karis discontinued his approach. 
I won't give it up. We need it, and the tree gave it to me freely, he added pointedly. His arrow was fixed on Karis's head. Sweat trickled down his cheek. The tree is naive, Karis said, and so are you. Times have changed, Fenelfirin. Old alliances cannot be counted upon. Even our brothers betray us. He paused, then added, and our sons. My father has gone mad. Everyone has gone mad. The craziness of the past weeks flooded Fennel's thoughts. Wildcats in the Donnan Forest, his father's refusal to act, accusations and bad feeling. Kier lying on a travoy, maybe dying, all because her friends had lost faith in her. The tree knows the truth better than my own kin. A bird swooped down at Karis. He let fly his arrow, and Fennel reacted. Fennel's bow twanged even as Karis's bow hissed overhead. Karis had only an instant to register shock before the arrow penetrated his skull. Fennel screamed in agony. He had killed an elf. Harley yelled to him from atop Layout's back. Fennel felt himself hoisted up behind his friend. The trees, as if sensing his turmoil, stood aside for the riders to bolt through. They, at least, were minding the rules. The other elves would surely lay the responsibility for his death at Fennel's feet. Harley rode as if they were in pursuit already, but Fennel heard nothing. Like when he was a child, the time he was underwater for far too long. No sound but water in his ears and his own inner screaming. He felt nothing but Laot's lithe body undulating beneath him. His own heartbeat eluded him. The trees thrust the riders out into the open, and they flew across the rolling plains in the colorless dawn light. They rode for an hour before stopping to rest the shattered horses and themselves. Fennel flopped onto a spread of buttercups. Harley took care of Laot. Thanks, Fennel whispered. Harley shrugged. You'd have done the same. I'm sorry about your horse, Harley shrugged again. These things happen. Derry and his little party awakened in their new camp. Skimnoddle had allowed Derry a couple of hours' rest before rousing him and Jaskelin. They had descended the winding trail by the light of Buck Moon just past the full as it rose above the mountains where Fennel and the others must be. It was a tricky descent, but they made it, then allowed themselves a few more hours' sleep. Daylight would facilitate their journey through the warren of paths. A good rest had eased Derry's troubled mind. He had convinced himself that the smoke Skimnoddle had smelled had come from the halfling's imaginative head. They would be through the gorge in a matter of hours, and Derry had every confidence that Fennel and the others would be waiting for them, and there would be no further delays. "'Are you sure you know your way through here?' Jaskelin asked, with uncharacteristic apprehension. "'I've been here once before,' Derry replied. "'If we keep going east, we'll reach the Lakewood, and the upward path is just beyond it.' They trudged eastward, hugged up against the wall of the ravine. About an eighty-foot wall towered over them, not a sheer precipice, but impassable except by the pathway they'd descended in the night." Scrub trees jutted out of the sandy incline, their roots poking out as if reaching for water in the air. Sage and other grasses dotted the walls, too, their fragrance dry and tingly mixed with the smell of sand. 
On the rider's right was a museum of sheer, butte-like formations. Lichens and liverworts coated their north sides in a green fur. A traveler could saunter in and around them, and though he might suffer a few setbacks in the form of trails that came to dead ends or culminated at unfathomably deep sinkholes, so long as he kept in roughly the same direction, all the twisting, turning, up-and-downhill pathways would ultimately lead him to the lakewood, a magical place which had sprung up at the far end of the gorge within in the spoon shape that had once been a bottomless lake. In an hour or so, Derry would lead the party around the far end of the buttes, doubling back on himself into the counterclockwise path that arced around the Hill of the Dead. The travois drew smoothly along the dry, even terrain. Kier's face was pinched in spite of the lack of usual jouncing, and Derry worried that she dreamt again. Perhaps we should stop for a moment. But before he could call a halt, the sound of whinnying horses reached them. It came from above and was amplified by the reverberations in the curves of the rock that surrounded them. Derry's gaze flew skyward. A familiar blue uniform stood high above. Several more uniforms flanked him with bows drawn and pointing down at the little party in the chasm. This would explain Skimnoddle's smoke. Halt! came the call. The voice was remarkably clear. We have, Derry's apprehension added an impatient tone to his reply. I am Major Gilvray of the Realm Guard, if you recall. I do, sir. Derry's mind worked quickly to anticipate what this might be about and how to skirt around it. You're a little south of your jurisdiction, aren't you? True, however, my jurisdiction extends as far as necessary when there has been a disturbance at the Inden Caves. Damn it! If Jaskellen had not been injured himself, he would have remembered to obliterate the signs of their presence there. And why do you bring this to our attention? We tracked you from the caves to this place. The Major's tone suggested that Derry ought not to deny the connection. I would find it easier to discuss the matter without yelling. Derry patted the neck of an anxious Donegill. What's to discuss? he called. The sound carried so well he did not have to strain his voice to be heard. The Major altered his stance and did not answer right away. We found evidence of a breach of the cave entrance. The captain met the nervous gazes of his companions before tilting his head upward again. We know nothing of a breach. Perhaps you are mistaken. Not likely, Captain Morant. Gilvray's sarcasm carried clearly down the cliffside. You can make no accusation to us, Jaskellen announced coolly. When we met, you claimed not to know the caves existed. Derry glanced at him. Good point. Immaterial, Gilvray held something up. You left this behind at the caves. Derry paled. Kier's pouch. He'd dropped it and forgotten it. Wait there, Gilvray ordered, mounting his horse. I prefer to speak face to face. Bows lowered and men mounted and rode west to the head of the trail. Quickly now, Derry said. We ride. He said to wait, Skimnoddle said. I am not under orders from the realm guard, Derry said. We ride now. The urgency was lost on none of them. From so far below, Derry could not count the number of soldiers Gilvray had with him. The odds were unlikely to be in Derry's favor. He was deeply concerned. Gilvray knew Kier had stolen the key. What would the realm guard's retribution be for such an act? If they didn't hurry, they might find out. Derry calculated rapidly, glancing to the rear every few seconds. We have about a forty-minute head start. 
but he looked anxiously at Kier's Travoy, at Trigg fighting to break loose from Jeskelin's hold so he could run. Jeskelin, who would not ride a horse, trotted along, his legs straining to pick up speed. Derry felt like screaming with agonized frustration and despair. Even if they left Gilvray behind in the chasm, the Major would eventually catch up once they were out of it at the other end. And what if Fennel isn't there? Would they have to leave the others behind? Oh, it was utter foolishness to think they'd be able to shake Gilvray. Derry clung to one thought. How well did Gilvray know this ravine? Frederick was glad for the rest, though the urgency never left the little party. Propriety would insist that the elves bury their dead captain right away before continuing the pursuit, but the same propriety should have prevented the exchange of arrows. No word was spoken until Janik suggested they carry on. They rode another few hours, closing the gap between themselves and the chasm, before stopping again to rest. It was only mid-morning. Frederick was stunned that Fennel had killed the elven captain. Even though Karis had fired first, it looked as if he'd been startled by the bird. When Fennel finally spoke, it was to agree with Frederick's unvoiced thought. It was a mistake, the elf insisted. He didn't mean to. He was having trouble eating. And neither did you, Janik argued with his mouth full of bread. The fact remains, he fired first. You did what any self-respecting warrior does. Fire at his own kin? Fennel said in disgust. Pah! Janik said, crumbs scattering. You just don't want to believe that another elf fired at you. Fennel glared at the space in front of him, then looked away. Something else was on Frederick's mind, and maybe a change of subject was in order. Listen, Fennel, I've been thinking. He felt the dwarf's distrustful glare, but ignored it. Fennel turned to him, hurt still glimmering in his azure-blue eyes. "'We can't see the elves following us yet,' Frederick said. "'But that's because we're on horseback and they're on foot. They may still be pursuing us.' "'Your point?' He had to word this carefully. "'If we all go to the meeting place, we'll lead the elves there, too.' Do we really want a host of enemies on our trail all the way to Barthelon Castle? How will we outrun them with an injured person on a chavoy? Janik growled at him. What's your suggestion? Frederick looked around at them all as if requesting their indulgence. He didn't want to come across as if he were trying to take over. Why don't I take the sap on to Bolivar Chasm and the rest of you can head... Fennel was instantly on his feet, sword in hand, the tip within a foot of Frederick's face too close for comfort. An elf who has killed another elf clearly does not possess the same scruples as he used to, Frederick thought. Frederick already knew that Fennel suspected his every move, and now he also realized that this Fennel was ruthless. He would not think twice about killing Frederick. Thank the gods Harley's here. His own man would stand up for him. Fennel's voice was soft yet fierce. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Frederick Hayland gets to be the hero. Frederick's tongue played with his teeth, and he hoped the truth didn't show on his face. I hate him. Time to be the diplomat again. Whatever you may have suspected of me in the past, right now I'm concerned about getting back to Barthelon Castle and saving the life of my lady. If that means involving some heroics, then so be it. You know as well as I that we will be held up by Kier. No thanks to you. The elf drew his sword. 
Frederick's sword crossed Fennel's. I did not push Kier over that brink. You didn't have to. It's your poisoned words that have turned our whole party against her. She's been doomed ever since we left Seaview. Before that, even. You know nothing, Frederick spit. I speak only what I know to be true. If your little lady friend is guilty of treachery, she did it to herself. Take that back. The elf bent his knees and elbows in battle-ready position. I don't want to kill you, Frederick roared. I want to get that sap back to the others without drawing the enemy with us. I won't give it to you. I trust you as much as that mall tree. With a growl of rage, Frederick flung his sword arm back and swung his weapon around. It clanged against Harley's. Astonished, Frederick met the cool gaze of the only one of his men who hadn't been lost in the battle at the caves. Put your sword away, Hunter. You are not the chief here. Apparently I've lost all my men, Frederick thought. Frederick held his sword against Harley's with some pressure just to show he was not giving up willingly. Eye to eye, the two humans held another sort of showdown. Fine, Hunter said at last, withdrawing his weapon. Shit, Hunter kept saying to himself, they're not going to remember my support on this fool's errand, they're going to remember that. Fennel curled up in his cloak on the grass. Harley sat bolt upright next to him, hand on his sword. Roman needed absolute silence in the chamber. Kean knelt next to the bed, holding Alon's hand, damp with perspiration, stroking it. Roman's strange little cone-shaped cup was pressed against Alon's distended belly, with the other end of it held just inside her ear. Occasionally the healer shifted the cup and listened again, and Jory, the apprentice, waited with the bellows poised to puff should her mentor signal her. Val sat in an armchair near the end of the bed and could tell nothing from the prime healer's expression. He wished the procedure would end so Roman could ease Kean's anxiety, not to mention his own. At last she raised her head and looked to her lord directly. "'It is fainter than it was last week, my lord,' the prime healer said gently, a worry line visible between her eyes despite her calming voice. "'At twenty-two weeks he has plenty of room to shift. It could easily be that he has turned round.' Kean's voice was hoarse. "'But it could also be that he is... succumbing.' Val knew how much pain it cost Kean to admit any sort of frailty, even in his unborn child. Roman tilted her head toward one shoulder in acknowledgment. But it is too soon to tell. Take heart, my lord. The wee one's a fighter like yourself. Kean pressed Alon's hand to his cheek, a gesture Val had become familiar with since his arrival a few days before. Thank you for your kind words, Kean said stiffly. Val heard the resentment even if the healer did not. He had known Kean for several hundred years, so even the slightest variation in timbre of the high elf's voice was recognizable. He also knew that his friend was searching for something or someone to blame for making his wife and his child look weak. That impression could easily be extended to himself, and appearances were everything to Kean Barthelon. The strongest man in Rydris must not look weak. Skimnoddle watched the warhorse about fifteen paces ahead of him. He turned back to check for signs of Gilvray and his men so he could warn the captain. Still no sign of their pursuers. He saw Jaskellen again perform the spell that would hide their trail. 
When he glanced down for his periodic check of the invalid, he did a double-take. Kier's eyes were wide open. He could not tell if she saw and registered their surroundings. She had, over the past few days, opened her eyes, yet she hadn't reached complete consciousness. From atop his pony, he was too far away to see whether her eyes held that same glassy stare. But her face looked squeezed with pain, and her body held tension as if she were trying to prevent herself from tumbling out of the carrier. What goes on in her beleaguered mind? One thing more. A thing you possibly don't even know yourself. I know about a particular magical gift you have. Jolting, aching. A particular magical gift you have. You don't need that. A shimmering archway. You don't need that. Stabbing pains. Pull out of the clouds. A gift. You don't need that. A thing you possibly don't even know yourself. Climb out. Hurts. A gift. You don't need that. A shimmering archway. Step through it to a new place. Out of the earthquake. You don't need that. An archway. Like a gate. A gate. Damn it! Gilray cried, reining in. He was sure this was the spot. He looked up. Yes, that was the bit of rock jutting out that he'd seen from above. I shouldn't be surprised they didn't wait. Why was there no trace of where they'd gone? The tracker was off his horse, scrutinizing the ground for any sign. Do they have a mage, sir? he asked. This is magical obliteration. It has to be. It's too thorough. Gilvray's memory went back to Kier's little group, that small black man with no hair, in the robes. Damnation! Is any one of you familiar with this... this chasm? He cursed his lack of geographical knowledge of the terrain south of the Pine Ridge Pass. Shouldn't have spent so much time drinking whiskey and troche. Sir, it was a relative newcomer. He'd been with the outfit only about six weeks. Barton? The young fellow urged his horse forward. I have not been here myself, sir, but my father has. What he told me about this place is that its paths are treacherously winding, and some of them come to dead ends, but with persistence one can find the river valley's exit at the east end. Will we continue the pursuit, sir? Of course we're going to continue the pursuit, Gilvray snapped. We have every reason to believe that those people breached the seal of the caves. They were trespassing, and they may very well have pilfered from it. Barton bowed. Then we must stick to this wall until we come to the end of a stand of rock towers, then turn to the right. Very well, you will ride at the front with me, so we may get out of this garen bereft abyss. He nudged his horse forward. Janik started awake at the pounding in the earth. The sun was high, past midday. He cursed himself for dozing off and roused the others in a hurry. We've slept too long, he cried. They're coming. Fennel scrambled to his feet. By the goddess, they're coming fast. They vaulted onto their animals, Harley riding with Fennel again, and flew in the direction of the chasm with the enemy at their heels. Derry slowed down to navigate around the acute angle to the right without spilling Kier. The Hill of the Dead loomed over them on the left, blocking out the diffused sun with its stark, dark grayness. Derry stopped to make sure the others got round the corner safely. The Hill of the Dead, my friends, he indicated it with an uneasy glance. They say it was created by the hands of the gods. They held a battle for supremacy with the creatures of this world. 
Men, dwarves, centaurs, you name it. They were all involved, except, of course, the elves. He stood in the stirrups and sat again. We must go. None of the elves were involved, not even the high elves, Jaskelin asked. Derry smiled as he chirruped to Donagill. If any elven faction were to battle with other beings for supremacy, it would be the high elves. No, not so far as I know, not even they. It is said that when the gods won, which naturally they did, they heaped the cadavers of the slain here in what was still a river at that time. The dead numbered so many that the sheer weight of them compressing upon each other eventually turned them into stone. If you look closely, you can see them. Derry had been inside this ravine only once before, and at that time he was not the leader. He had taken the time then to gaze searchingly up the rock face. Though age and weather had smoothed the stone, the young man had imagined he saw quite defined outlines of ribs, of knees, of faces. This time, though, Captain Morant shuddered and did not raise his eyes. He quickened the pace as much as he dared. The trail climbed a low-grade slant, then turned to the left. Derry had to duck to allow himself and Donegal to pass beneath a water-carved archway of stone. The others, riding their smaller animals, had more clearance. As they came to the south side of the Hill of the Dead, the trail forked three ways. Terry stopped abruptly, a frenzy of memories flipping through his head. Which way? Oh, why didn't I pay more attention? They could ill afford to make the wrong choice. If the trail came to an end and they had to turn back, they'd likely run right into their pursuers. Derry leafed among the memories and his common sense. The path to the right obviously came from upstream. The one straight ahead appeared to go steeply downhill up ahead, and the captain had no recollection of steep trails on his previous journey. Fine, then. Eastward lay their destination. He led the party to the left. The second we get out of sight of this fork, obliterate, Derry ordered Jaskelin, who didn't have to be told twice. It may have been mere coincidence, but Derry soon knew he'd taken the correct trail. They faced east for a time, then due south, passing another trail off to the right, which the captain ignored without hesitation. The trail took an abrupt curve to the left. The rock was rounded out and smooth, and Derry pictured water crashing and swirling before being tossed eastward in a splashing and foaming torrent. The sound of hooves fit into his imaginings all too well. He stopped, raising his hand to alert the others to silence. Was it just a trick of amplification, or were Gilvray and his men not far behind? Jaskelin threw his obliteration spell again, but Derry knew it may not be enough. If he could hear Gilvray, then chances were Gilvray could hear them, and they were not burdened with an injured friend. Come on, we're nearly there, I can feel it. He hastened forward, veering to the right of a rocky cliff that had once been a fifteen-foot waterfall, choosing instead the pebbly higher ground with weeds and small shrubs. A shadow passed overhead, and Derry looked up to see a raptor disappear into its home in the cliff face, its talons full of dinner. The path began a slow descent following the water's bizarre pattern. Derry glanced back to see that Jaskelin was managing Trigg and received a signal from Skimnoddle that Kier was safe. The rumbling of horses behind them grew louder. Derry also heard a cry of some command being given. "'They must have someone with them who knows the paths,' Jaskelin said. The next fork came into view. The trail to the right went straight and looked to be the correct choice, but Derry paused a moment. 
Sheer walls surrounded them, nearly touching the clouds with their colored layers of rock and soil. The captain chose the trail that swerved left. He breathed an audible sigh of relief. The pathway went north for only a few paces, then bent sharply to the right, and soon the cavernous chasm opened before them in a breathtaking scene. An alpine meadow stolen by the gods from the mountains and concealed down here in the dry river valley, a greensward confettied with wildflowers of all varieties, shades, colors, fragrances, blooming against all natural laws imposed on the above-ground world. Bees and birds buzzed, flitted, and twittered, and a light sprinkling of dew dazzled in the hazed-over sunlight. Beyond the meadow of flowers, about the same distance as the gatehouse at Shale Castle across the ward to the door of the keep, the lakewood. They raced as fast as they could without spilling Kier through the flowers, crushing them mercilessly with their passing. Beyond the wood lay their destination. At least they'd have a fighting chance once they had their full party together again. The trees drew nearer and nearer. What type or sort of trees they were, Derry did not know or care. He looked back, still no visible sign of Gilvray. Trees, here we come. Donegal ducked into the relative darkness, and only when he'd gone far enough to make room for his companions did Derry pause. A call reached his ears before he could turn around. Gilvray's blue uniform belched forward out of the cliff-lined paths. He did not slow the pursuit. The flight was useless. Derry gritted his teeth in despair and threw despondent glances at his companions. A quick look at the pain etched on Kier's face reminded him that he hadn't given her any tea, and he worried that she might regain consciousness here in the middle of all this. There's nothing for it. He hollered the others to hustle, kicked Donagill, and together they fled through the forest. So, Griffin and the Spurious Correlations is now going out to beta readers. This is my contemporary humor fantasy romance, which I will be podcasting next after Gatekeeper's Deception, because the final book in the Gatekeeper series is not finished. It's coming along, though. I keep changing my mind about stuff. I added a character back in, for one thing. I had cut her, but decided she's awesome. So, well... I kept coming across the scenes I had written with her in them, and it was like she was tapping me on the shoulder going, tap, 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 Krista, I want to be in the book. Tap, 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 hello, can I be in the book? So I was like, okay, fine, but you have to prove yourself and do something awesome. And she's like, watch me. Well, okay. (laughs) Meanwhile, Griffin is hilarious and stressful, I'm not sure if I have the build-up of tension quite right, but certainly the lead-up to the climax and the rest of it is kind of relentless. It's so weird how stories come about. Griffin happened because of one incident with a lead guitarist I used to play with in a band. One tiny thing that happened that isn't even portrayed in the book the way it actually happened. I magnified it greatly. And then the rest of this crazy weird story filled itself. (laughs) The creative process is so fun. (laughs) So hit like and subscribe and share. And if you feel like going on to Goodreads or Apple Books, Google or Downpour and giving a review of my work, those platforms you see will let you give a review even if you haven't purchased it through them. You're hearing it here on the podcast, so you don't need to purchase it. Scribed will let you do it 
if you sign up for a free trial. But whatever. Anyway, reviews would just be terrific. In any event, I really appreciate you for listening. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks, David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And hey, thanks to you for listening. Take care of yourselves. Now, go be fantastic.